0: To start by commending Andy for uh, one of the most joyous nights of music I've had for a very very long time, <laughs> on Monday with a group of fellow musicians, including the uh, the great Stephen Page of Faber and Faber on drums and the great Hannah Griffiths, agent and uh, uh, and publisher on bass, uh, Andy on keyboards and vocals. They produced the whole of Abbey Road by the Beatles. Not one of the simplest albums. I mean, we're not talking bridge over troubled water here, folks. We're talking about one of one of the great iconic albums of, of, of the 60s by the most famous band of all. And it was brilliant. And we sang, very nice. sang every single very song nice. at did. the top of our voices all the way through. We drank far too much. And we felt strangely kind of elated and happy. Happy to have been there. Happy to recognize that abbey road is actually a bloody brilliant i would
1: like to also say thanks to all the backlisted listeners who came there quite a few backlisted listeners who came along and gave money to the literacy trust it was the literacy trust so thank you very much you'd expect me to go "Oh, it was great right oh it was brilliant it was absolutely incredible (laughs) (laughs) if if all my my 51 year old self got to behave like an absolute fool on the stage stage diving at the 100 club and um you will confirm, John. We really rocked it, right?
0: Given the amount of time you'd rehearsed, I thought you were tighter than you had any right to be. Uh, you good. I mean, really, really musically, it was. I, 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 you didn't feel you were making kind of uh, shabby compromises. <laughs> you know, I don't really like tribute bands. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't go and see the bootleg Beatles. Well, maybe I would, but yeah, and maybe I enjoy, enjoy it. Maybe I should. Maybe I've, I've learned a lesson. But I, everybody loves a sing along, and they also because there were lots of people in the audience who knew a lot of the people who were playing, it was. Uh, it, i I've not. I don't think I've ever been to a gig quite like it, and I would certainly hope that Shabby Road or what you're gonna, whatever you're going to call not yourselves next, the not, not too, too shabby. shabby road, you do it again.
1: Hey, we managed to sell out the hundred club on a Monday, and we've raised. We think all in all, we'll end up raising about ten grand. Liz, 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 trust. I'm, I'm raising a glass. Yeah, let's uh, all raise our glass of cheers. our Southern Comfort here to uh... <laughs> whiskey. Just
0: a little whiskey. Well, it's actually it's not, it's red wine, everybody, just but you'll see you'll see why it should be whiskey
1: in a moment. But oh, it was okay. such a laugh. It took me days to recover. I haven't recovered now. In fact, this is the most adrenaline I've had coursing through my system since Monday night. I almost don't know what to do with it. Good, because we're gonna Good. Need, we're gonna need it. Hello and welcome <laughs> to
0: Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us on the dusty porch of a dilapidated mansion in Mississippi, the heavy scent of wisteria and cigar smoke hanging in the air as we listen to the grim, haggard, amazed voice of an old woman telling us about the lives of people we will never meet. It rude? I'm
1: John Mitchinson, <laughs> the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today... Back! She's back, back, back! She's back! <laughs> For the fourth time as a guest on Backlisted, Sarah, before I introduce you properly, Sarah Church, everybody, everybody knows yeah. that, come on. Sarah, what were the three previous books you've discussed on this podcast?
2: Well, and you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about this in the run-up to this book and that they are really they do kind of go together in a way that I hadn't really thought about. You, <laughs> you have slowly
1: mined a scene. <laughs> right? go on. Um,
2: so the first one that I brought in, lo these many years ago, was Nella Larson's absolutely brilliant I novel think, Passing. I think about it um, often. Just still the book that everybody should go back to that enough people have not heard of then we did have a change of pace with um, although still set in the 1920s <laughs> um, with it, with Anita Luce's brilliant Gentleman Prefer Blondes which is much funnier than anybody thinks it is who has only seen the Marilyn Monroe movie um, or indeed has not seen the Marilyn Monroe movie and then, and then we, uh, the last time I was uh, in these uh, hallowed halls, we discussed Gill Jones's unforgettable Corregidora, or Corregidora, as you guys like to say it. And, and
1: you got that republished you did. in the UK. We
2: got that republished, <laughs> which is very, very, very exciting. Yes. So well done, backlisted.
1: Yay, well done, Batlist. But yay, well done, Sarah, for bringing in a series of brilliant books for us to take a tiny amount of the credit for. I must say, Corregidora, Corregidora, Corregidora. That is one of the most incredible books we've done on Batlisted. Sure. Uh, we love all our children. I wouldn't say that, I, but I wouldn't <laughs> say that if I didn't mean I it. It, was it just is such a blew a... me away.
0: Yeah, that to have a, a book of that quality that isn't known, obviously, the, the Toni Morrison backstory that mm. she'd, she'd edited it and, and that that book had some we feel must have had some kind of uh, influence on the way she went, the way her career went after that, particularly with, Mm. with Beloved.
1: Well, the reason why Sarah is able to bring a series of books is because she's an expert. She's a professor of American literature and chair of public understanding of the humanities at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London, as well as working as a critic, prize judge, TV and radio pundit. Sarah is also the author of books on Marilyn Monroe, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and her most recent published in paperback earlier this year by Bloomsbury, Behold America, which has transformed your profile. <laughs> has it not?
2: It has really changed my profile, yes. And I bet it has, my yeah. A history so. of
1: America first in the American dream called Excoriating and Brilliant by Ali Smith and which inspired historian Dan Snow to call Sarah his number one contributor when it comes to US politics. And I yes. dare say you will be... Oh, uh, you guys, I'm blushing. I dare say you will be bringing some... <laughs> Uh, contemporary resonances to our attention so that we talk about today (laughs) oh i think that's a Um, a fair uh, bet let's say
0: that that book should we say what the book is so the book sarah's joining us to discuss today is one of the great classics of 20th century american literature absalom absalom by william faulkner first published in 1936 by random house widely considered one of the key novels that went on to win faulkner the 1950 Nobel Prize for Literature.
2: One of the reasons why I suggested Absalom Absalom was I was thinking back on Corregidora and realizing that of course, from my point of view, it's quite clear that Gail Jones is taking on Absalom Absalom in that book and rewriting it for women. And then and I suddenly thought, wait a minute, we haven't actually done the origin. And the the conversation between the two novels is absolutely extraordinary. I'm
1: going to be bringing up the name Toni Morrison as well. Well, I would have thought so. It would be wrong not to. (laughs) Quite (laughs) soon. But before, before we do that, John, what have you been reading this week? Well, a bit of a change of pace from
0: Faulkner. I'm reading a really, really, I think, delicious collection of short stories by Wendy Erskine called Sweet Home. Wendy Erskine is a teacher. From East Belfast. And these stories uh, were some of them originally published by the excellent journal Stinging Fly. And in fact, this edition of the book is published by Stinging Fly. She is, I guess, doing the kind of observational, sympathetic, working class stories. If you're even remotely a fan of, I think I previously on a podcast raved about Lisa Blower. I've also raved about Anna Burns Milkman, who was. There is an amazing amount of, I think, really interesting writing mm. coming out of Ireland. They are their characters set in ordinary life in East Belfast. The first story starts in a, in a beauty parlour and it's, it's called To All Their Jews. And you go through each of the characters who, for some reason, the beauty parlour becomes a, a, a centre of their lives. Pop culture references abound throughout the book. In that regard, she has something of the humorous, generous quality of Roddy Doyle. But there's a brilliant, I, I wish I could read more of it, but out of context it wouldn't work, a story called 77 Pop Facts You Didn't Know About Gil Courtney, which is done, it's basically a short story done as a series oh, of, is it? Of, of smash hits facts. And it is, you know, I mean, I can read one of them just because it cheers me up always. This is fact number 39. In a 1993 interview, Van Morrison was asked if he could remember Gil Courtney. He said no. <laughs> but I'll read you a little bit of one of the stories just to give you the flavour. This a story called Arab States Mind Narrative. And the, the heroine of the story is Paula McRae. And she's in a slightly kind of flabby m- marriage, isn't going brilliantly, to a man called Jimmy. And she notices on television that some an old school friend of hers uh, that you think of he's probably gone out with called Ryan Hughes has now become a kind of an expert on uh, Middle Eastern politics. She gets very excited about this and starts to read up about Middle Eastern politics and then actually takes it on. She notices that she's, he's appearing at a literary festival. She, so she decides she's going to go in Newcastle. So she has to fly, that she's yeah. going to go and visit him. But I just thought, this gives you the flavour, a, a, a couple of passages She's talking to Jimmy, her husband, about uh, whether he remembers Ryan. He now calls himself not just Ryan Hughes, but Ryan Kedroff Hughes. She says, she's reading the book section of the Sunday paper when she sees that a crime writer is appearing at a book festival in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. In smaller letters, much smaller letters underneath, are those also appearing. This person, that person, never heard of him, never heard of him, never heard of her, and Ryan Kedroff Hughes. He would be talking about his forthcoming book, Arab States, Mind and Narrative. (laughs) There isn't a photo, just one of the crime guys sitting in front of a bookcase. Paula goes on the computer to order the book. While she's there, she has a quick look at flights to Newcastle, which is surprisingly reasonable. By the way, Paula says one day when she and Jimmy are having their tea, I don't suppose you ever remember me talking about Ryan Hughes? We're going back way back here, you know, university. We're going back years. Nope. You don't remember me mentioning him at all? Nope, never heard of the fella. You sure? You sure you can't remember him? Nope. Well, he's not called that anymore anyway, says Paul. He's called Ryan Kedroff Hughes. Just thought you might remember him. He's on the TV these days, politics shows. Oh, well, now you've told me that's on politics shows, I know exactly who you're talking about. You do? No. Actually, hold on, he says. That fella. I think I do actually know who you mean. Yeah, yeah. He was always at Mick's Christmas parties. Mick was the only person from your course that was normal. Mick was dead on. That guy you're on about was always there, always in the kitchen, crapping on about something or other. You know, turn the music down so I can talk because people might really need to hear what I have to say. think I might actually... Yeah, I think I might have actually had a run-in with him once. Sort of Lord Snooty type of fella. Uh, might not be the same person, says Paula. He wasn't like that at all. Ryan Hughes was actually incredibly left-wing. Well, this guy I'm thinking of was a bit of a dick, says Jimmy. Well, the guy I'm thinking of wasn't a dick, says Paula, might not even be the same person. Did you know him? Well, the person you say wasn't a dick. No. Well, he might have been the dick I'm talking about. He wasn't a dick, says Paula. That's <laughs> and, right. so, and so it goes on. But I won't tell you, but it's, it's everything that you would hope that the story would deliver on. It does. Who's it published by? It's published by Stinging Fly. Okay. And I think she's got a deal now with a U- UK publisher as well. But it's it, I really, really recommend it. S- uh, Sweet home, Wendy Erskine. Andy, what have you been reading?
1: Hang on. I'm going to get something out of my bag first. There's a lot of rustling going on, no, listeners, as so you can probably is. ah. Well, it's actually I'm going to talk about what who I've been reading this month. Right. So about a month ago. John and I went down to the End of the Road Festival. On my way out the door to get on the train to go down to Dorset, I grabbed a a handful of books from the pile in my office of stuff that I think I might enjoy. And in my Airbnb on the Saturday night on the outskirts (laughs) of Salisbury, I fell in love. And I want to tell the world, right, (laughs) I have discovered the work of the Austrian writer Thomas Bernhardt who died in 1989, some of whose books are being republished by Faber. Everyone says about Bernhardt, who likes Bernhardt, when you read one, you want to read another one. And they're right. I've read seven in a month, right? (laughs) He is my utter dreamboat crush. So first of all, I'm just going to read one of his stories. There's a book here called The Voice Imitator, 104 stories by Thomas Bernhardt. They're all very short. First of all, I'm going to read the story Disappointed Englishman. Now that everything is a metaphor for Brexit, bear that in mind as I read you this story written (laughs) written in the 1980s. Several Englishmen who were inveigled by a mountain guide in eastern Tyrol into climbing the Traitsinen with him were so disappointed after reaching the highest of the three peaks with what nature had to offer them on this highest peak that then and there they killed the guide, a family man with three children and it seems a deaf wife. When, however, they realised what they had actually done, they threw themselves off the peak, one after the other. After this, a newspaper in Birmingham wrote that Birmingham had lost its most outstanding newspaper publisher, its most extraordinary bank director, and its most able undertaker. And if that isn't the Brexit metaphor, <laughs> I don't know what is. Uh, so, so, but that's not very representative of Thomas Bernhardt. Why do I love Thomas Bernhardt so much? Basically, every Thomas Bernhardt book seems pretty similar to every other Thomas Bernhardt book. They all involve single paragraphs. Every book is one paragraph, pretty much. The Loser, which is the first one that I read, is a book about three aspiring concert pianists one of whom is Glenn Gould <laughs> and the book is the narrator complaining about what it's been like to have lived for a bit with Glenn Gould and how it ruins the whole of your life if you yourself had aspirations to become a concert pianist right so there's that one uh, there's another book which is published by Notting Hill Editions called My Prizes an accounting, John, you would particularly like this one. This is a book in which Thomas Bernhard writes nine essays about the nine literary prizes he has won in his career and why they all stink and why he shouldn't have accepted them. There's another one here called Old Masters. This is probably of the ones that I've read is the one that I recommend first and foremost. Uh, Again, there's no paragraphs. It's a man looking at another man in an Austrian art gallery looking at a painting for 200 pages. And it's both uh, uh, Michael Hoffman, the poet Michael Hoffman says about Bernhardt that it's, almost but not quite hilarious.
2: That's the most British thing I ever heard. Uh, but, but As a
1: term of praise, it's right. It has this internal rage which... Reaches a point of hilarity and then keeps going. You know, like with a kid, where you would say to a kid, "Okay, funny, not funny, funny, stop it," yeah. right? It's it's on the not, it's on the not funny into funny into this is too much, right? And he needles you, and he needles you, and he presses you, and he never stops, and he keeps going. There's no paragraph breaks, and it repeats, and it repeats, and it repeats, right? And it works up this brilliant momentum via repetition and this kind of almost motoric beat it's like it's like it, it's where this dyspeptic thing reaches a kind of level of ecstasy it becomes so um 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 full of dark energy Buketian? right it it is Biketian, yeah I mean, it I, is Biketian. the
0: one i've read which i love was wittgenstein's nephew which i read years yeah. ago
1: but i was talking about this on twitter and um a guy called Zemblematic was saying oh it's very interesting with the loser because The Loser is about Glenn Gould and talks about Bach quite a lot. He said, I was sort of interpreting the way the book shifts as like Bach variations. It's almost built in a musical way. And I was thinking, oh, that's really interesting, because for me, that, that motric, that repetitive beat is like uh, Noy, is like the group Noi, I like uh, the drummer Klaus Dinger, one of the three greatest drummers that ever lived, Write in if you want to know who the other two are. My verdict is definitive. Really? I'm telling you now, listeners, the I'm Bernhard telling you now, there's going to be a Bernhardt episode of Batlisted. Right. I just have to find yeah. the right victim to drag on into the studio to do it.
0: Time now for
1: an advert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pretend that it's, the, it's exactly. the first choice. So I suppose if we were reading out some Faulkner, we'd read it out over something by... Brothers, or uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see.
2: Um, But but Faulkner's writing in the 30s, so actually, if we want to listen to contemporary music, we would be listening to jazz, yeah. um, and that's what you know he would have been listening to, as far as I know. Although I don't actually claim to know uh, Faulkner's musical taste. Rather than thinking about the musical background, though, of course, it is the uh, liquid background that one really has to think about with Faulkner. Um, <laughs> How and true! I uh, I always think um, I, a favorite line of mine from Faulkner's is um, something he said when he he gave a brilliant interview. Is um, one of the early Paris Review is interviews. One of the great- Right. It's one of the all-time great interviews. And the interviewer said, you know, he only needed a few things. I don't, I don't have this verbatim, but the gist is. He only needed a few things in order to write. And it was a pencil and some paper and some quiet and some whiskey. And then the interviewer said, but bourbon, right? And Faulkner said, bourbon, I ain't that particular. Between nothing and scotch, I'll take scotch. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got a, we've
1: got a. as if by magic, we have a clip relevant to that theme. Bill Mayhew,
3: sorry about the odor. Jesus, W.P.? I beg your pardon? W.P. Mayhew, the writer? Just Bill, please. You're the finest novelist of our time. Why, thank you, son, how kind. I had no idea you were in Hollywood. All of us undomesticated writers eventually make our way out here to the Great Salt Lake. That's probably why I always have such a powerful thirst. A little social lubricant, Mr. Fink? No, it's a little early for me. <laughs> have you ever written a, res- a wrestling picture? Mr. Fink, they have not invented a genre of picture that Bill Mayhew was not at one time <laughs> on. Well, yes, you- I have taken my stab at the wrestling form. As I have stabbed at so many others and with as little success. Well, how do you... I gather that you are a freshman here, eager for an upperclassman's council. However, just at the moment, I have drinking to do. Why don't you stop by my bungalow, which is number 15, later on this afternoon, and we will discuss wrestling scenarios and other things literary.
1: <laughs> and that is <laughs> the great Barton ba- Fink. The great Barton <laughs> Fink. So that's the late John Mahoney, who, of course, yeah. went on to be Frasier's dad in the sitcom Frasier, uh, playing. Um, W.P. Mayhew, a thinly, yeah. thin, thinly, wafer, veiled wafer, thinly veiled uh, portrait of William Faulkner. And, and of course, Faulkner, actually, for quite a long time. I mean, he was in Hollywood he was in on and Hollywood. off for, like, 20 years or he something, He was,
2: right? and he really made his living from writing for Hollywood rather than from writing his novels like many of his contemporaries. But he was actually a notably successful screenwriter, unlike, for example, his contemporary Scott Fitzgerald, who was notably an unsuccessful screenwriter.
0: Yeah. But He's writing for Hollywood after he's written the the sequence of great novels, which sort of kicks off with Sound and the Fury in 1929, As I Lay Dying, 1930, Sanctuary, 31, Light in August, 32, Does a weird book, which I've never read, called Pylon in 1935. And then Absalon, Absalon. And you chose this because this you think is his
2: masterpiece. I think it is his masterpiece. And, yes, uh, again, answers can come in on postcards for those who want to debate me on it. Many people will say... (laughs) Don't at me. You know, exactly. Um, (laughs) a, A lot of people will say A Light in August. Not only do I think that Absalom, Absalom! is Faulkner's masterpiece. For me, it is probably the greatest American novel of the 20th century.
0: Whoa, <laughs> big, big claims. Yeah, big I really claims. think it
2: is. Can argue the toss, but but it's certainly in the top three. And I guess we have we have a few minutes to try to explain why we think that is the case. But so exactly, so in a, in, a, in a in a seven year period. Um, he went from so *Sound the Fury* is basically his second novel, give or take. Um, he struggled with this first and then revised it, and, and that's the one
0: he liked the best. He always said,
2: "You can't really trust Bill on these things, though." Yeah. You know, I mean, you he's just—he's not, not a reliable narrator, our Bill. And this book is I'm, about unreliable narration. We can't trust the word the man says. I'm gonna—I'm
1: gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> Except pause. That he
2: liked whiskey, <laughs> Sarah. I'm gonna pause you with full
1: respect, gonna, because I want to just tell listeners who haven't read the book. I'm gonna try uh, using this terrible blurb. I'm gonna try and tell them what. <laughs> the book is okay, about. Okay, but then
2: I decided to challenge myself by coming in and seeing if I could summarise an unsummarizable book. So I okay, also have... Okay, Sarah?
1: It's a terrible book The blurb, blurb is Which terrible I mean, and, it's, and it's got a spoiler. It it's bad? like It's like if it somebody... A spoiler in it, yeah. It's like if someone yeah. had blurbed Citizen Kane and yeah. gone... Deprived of his fled rosebud. <laughs> rosebud, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so maybe I won't read the blurb. And the best and joke we've ever done. On <laughs>
2: uh,
1: uh, Sarah, uh, why don't you, okay, come I'll give on, it a, summarize I'll, the unsummarizable. I'll,
2: I'll give it a crack. It is indeed a novel that you cannot summarize. And I I was thinking when I came back to it, and it's probably the 10th or 11th time that I've read it. Yeah, and and I still don't understand it. (laughs) Um, But but I keep trying. (laughs) You know
0: know what he said, don't you? He said, some people say you can't understand your writing even after they've read it two or three times. What approach would you suggest for them? read it four
2: times (laughs) which is also from the Paris review interview i absolutely love that read it a fourth time exactly and i've taken him at his word and that is what i've tried to do but i was thinking when i when i picked it up off my shelf and you guys can attest i have it is absolutely kind of riddled with some post-it notes and and stuff and it looms much larger in my memory i think of it as a much longer book than it is because he packed so much into it no i just think of it as this kind of behemoth Yeah. Um, And it's not. It's 300 pages. So, I mean, it is a behemoth in terms of what it's doing, Mm. but it's actually not that intimidating in terms of page numbers. It is Um, not a
0: quick read. No,
2: it is is not a quick read. It is an intensely challenging read. So the shortest uh, summary of it is that it's um, and we should note that it was written in the same year. So it was published in 1936, as John just said, and it's basically a grown up gone with the wind. Is what it really is, which, of course, was also published in 1936. They were published at the same time. And the only thing that Faulkner um, was willing to be drawn in to say about Gone with the Wind, which, of course, went on to become the publishing phenomenon, you know, he dreamt of such sales as um, Gone with the Wind had. (laughs) Absalom sold something like 6,000 copies when Gone with the Wind sold millions and millions. And he said, they asked, they tried to draw him in on it and he wouldn't be baited. And um, they said, what do you think about Gone with the Wind? And he said, no story takes 1,037 pages to tell, Um, which I should have remembered in thinking that it's longer than it is, because this is actually a pretty tight 300 pages. So it's basically Gone with the Wind in a gothic nightmare form. (laughs) So the, the shortest version, I was trying to condense it down to like a tweet, right? And the shortest version of this book, it's even, this is a short tweet even, is that it is about how Intersectionality will bring down white patriarchy. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, that's what it's about. It is about the radical uncertainty of historical memory. Yeah, it's about the process that transforms fact into myth, and it's an allegory of the Civil War, asking what makes brother kill brother in 1865.
0: How do you? That is pretty good. I you have to say, got that the, is, the job. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <got> <laughs> You can write blurbs on the back of the book. I'm going to Just...
1: read the blurb but not the the, oh, the spoiler the spoiler, right? Okay. As a poor white boy, redacted. <sighs> from then on, he was determined to force his way into the upper echelons of southern society. Sutpen's relentless will ensures his ambitions are soon realized. Land, marriage, children. But after the chaos of the civil war, Secrets from his own past threaten to destroy everything he has worked for. (laughs) I mean, it's it's not—it's not—it's not 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 inaccurate, Um, but it's
2: deeply misleading, superficial, and kind of misses the point.
1: John, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. So I come to you and I say, "Oh, I see you're reading Absalom, Absalom. What's it about?" (laughs) Um, Well, you can
2: answer that question in a hundred different ways.
1: For me, it's—it is one of the great novels
0: about the impossibility of telling the truth. Mm that the truth is always a a version of the truth. It's almost like there is a side to Fulton that you feel he is like some sort of grand investigator. Mm. He's he's interrogating the past. You're never not inside somebody's head Mm. in this book. Okay, so there is no narrator guiding you through. Well, it. there There's are so, yeah. several, yeah. right? So, Four, five. So yeah. so
2: yeah, so should we just give a couple of key facts so that people can kind of ground themselves? Would yeah. that be useful? Okay, so it's a novel that it's full of flashbacks and and flashbacks within flashbacks and memories within flashbacks and stories and, that are told uh, at uh, different points uh, and, and digressions within flashbacks. and digressions within, within flashbacks within memories and then the memories are uncertain themselves. So it's radically destabilizing. You know, this is high modernism. We're in nineteen thirty six. This is think Ulysses, but in the American. Deep South, and he so was it a is
0: massive. A ch- he was a worship joist.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, this is a deliberately challenging and, and um, destabilizing read, and it's re- fundamentally it's about unreliable narrators, but it's really about unreliable narration rather than just relying on them. It's about how unreliable narration is built into human consciousness, to human memory, to storytelling. There's no such thing as reliable narration, and
1: and who are yes. so those unreliable, unreliable.
2: So our unreliable narrators are. It begins with. A young man called Quentin, who readers of The Sound and the Fury will remember, who's the protagonist of The Sound and the Fury, Quentin Compson. We should actually, um, let me back up even further for a second and say that for those who have never read any Faulkner before, it's probably you- worth explaining Yoknapatawpha. Yeah. So what Faulkner does across these books that we mentioned, from The Sound and the Fury, through Absalom Absalom, and indeed through later books as well, including The Reavers, is he he, he creates a fictional universe in um, Mississippi that is based on his hometown. He calls it Jefferson, Mississippi, and he places it in the fictional Yachnapatafa County. And Yachnapatafa County is basically a high modernist Marvel universe. <laughs> <laughs> It is, right? <laughs> that is
1: genius. That is genius.
0: It, right? no,
2: absolutely. So, so that is brilliant.
1: MGU, the right. Mississippi Gothic <laughs> yeah, universe. exactly. Right?
2: And so there are, these, there are certain characters who, who recur, but each one has their own storyline and their own backstory and yeah. their own mythology. Oh, each one has that. their own powers and Very their own de- tragedies and their own fates. And sometimes they intersect, and sometimes he'll go back and he'll rediscover a marginal character and make them the centre of another novel, and he'll do all of that kind of thing.
1: We've got a clip here of Faulkner... The quality is not brilliant, but it is William Faulkner talking about Absalom Absalom. And this is his view of what is going on in the book in terms of what Sarah was just talking about.
3: I think that uh, no one individual can, can look at truth, it, 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 it blinds you. You look at it and, and you see uh, uh, one phase of it. Someone else looks at it and sees a slightly awry phase of it, but taken all together, the truth is is in what they saw. Though uh, nobody saw the truth intact, so, so these are are true as far as as Miss Rosa and as Clinton saw it. Clinton's father saw what what he believed was truth. That was all he saw. The old man was was himself a little too big for. For people of no greater in stature than Clinton and Miss Rosa and Mr. Compton to see all this, it would take him probably a wiser, or more tolerant, or more sensitive, or more thoughtful person to see him as he was. It was, as you say, <clears> 13 <throat> ways of looking at black But the truth, I would like to think, comes out that. Yes. when the reader has read all these 13 different ways of looking at the black bird the reader has his own 14th image of that black bird which i would like to think is the truth
1: excellent now uh, the implication of that i just want to pick up from that and from what you were saying sarah one of the things i found really rewarding in the book and seemed really uh, innovative is the implication from that that truth is subjective to the point where early in the book what's presented by somebody giving you what they see as just the facts is no more or less valid than by the end of the book the two boys at harvard actively encouraging one another to come up with fictionalized versions of events about which they actually know little or nothing is that something that Faulkner repeats in other books? Is this a theme of Faulkner's writing that he comes back to? Yeah, you know definitely. the story is no more or less true than what you think is a factual account.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's really about the the act of mythologization, right? And, And one way of thinking about this book is that it's about the transformation of fact through memory into history, into mythology. But what's so interesting about Faulkner is that he keeps suggesting that the mythology might be truer than the facts and that through the mythology we might get at some truths that the facts don't get at. And he strongly implies that Quentin and Shreve got it right even though they're spinning conjecture, even though they don't know. And in fact, there's a great line that Quentin um, says that I I often um, kind of underscore for my students because it seems to encapsulate the idea. Um, Quentin thinks to himself that they're imagining it so vividly, he thinks to himself, he could see it, he might even have been there. Then he thought, no, if I had been there, I could not have seen it this plain the importance of distance, the importance of time, the importance of actually being able to recognize suppressed motives. I mean, it's also about bias, right? There are things that Miss Rosa cannot admit to herself about what happened to her. And there are things that Quentin's father in good faith reports to his yeah, son yeah. that he believes to be the truth, but because Mr. Thompson is an old Southern gentleman, there are things that he would not admit that these modern young men think, hang on, we think this is what's what. So that's why it's about revisionist history. They are really trying to strip away the mythology, but by doing so, yeah. they end up risking rebuilding the mythology. And, and Faulkner different is different also,
1: Faulkner also, via, I don't know, implication? Well, there certainly seems a self-awareness mm-hmm. you know Faulkner is pulling himself into that circle right mm. within the novel there is an extent to which the novel I felt anyway reading it the novel knows it's a novel mm. and is keen that you know it's a it's novel, a novel. Yeah. because it's all part of the same circle of well, storytelling and mythmaking. making and,
2: and I, sh- I should have just said that of course the mythology isn't the end of it so it's actually fact memory history mythology fiction yeah
0: there's a lovely thing he says in the, in, the, in the Paris Review interview about that you know that, he, that I think one of the great things that he does is he, he takes this tiny microcosm, he calls it a cosmos of my own, and he says, I can move these people around like God, not only in space but in time too. The fact that I have moved my characters around in time successfully, at least in my own estimation, proves to me my own theory that time is a fluid condition which has no existence except in the momentary avatars of individual people, mm-hmm. given that all fiction in the end has to be about time, it's about mm. how stories exist within time and how, and it, you know, his famous and and now I discover a, a heavily copyrighted quote: "The past isn't dead; it isn't even past," <laughs> which was uh, used in a Woody Allen film, <laughs> and Faulkner Estate sued because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't attributed. <laughs> I think that is the sort of the the key into Faulkner is that oh. he creates this world and proves to you that time that the characters' time. But they are somehow embodying, they're 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 embodying almost like kind of mythological. That's why the Marvel yeah. thing is so brilliant. <laughs> could it. I
1: could I just also I'd like to add. I found out a little fact that I didn't know. The past is dead. It's not even past. Which really ought to be Batlist's motto. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so do you know what novel that comes from? Which yes, do. For the novel? sanctuary? Requi- actually no, the, Requiem it's actually the, the, the Requiem I mean Requiem for, Requi- for, the for the none. none, and
2: it's the play of Requiem for None, not the novel. Okay,
1: so it comes from the play. Which is uh,
2: "Requiem for None" is a sequel to "Sanctuary," I should say, which is where my slip of the tongue came from. Yeah. It was not speaking out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. "Requiem for None," yeah. tra- dramatized by Albert Camus <laughs> as "Requiem pour un non," subsequently punned by Serge Gainsbourg as <laughs> "Requiem <laughs> as Requiem pour un con." <laughs> Which means the thing you think it means, right? (laughs) So, Gansburg always, always with the deep French cultural pun.
2: Well, we don't actually even have to go to Requiem for None, though, or indeed to Gansburg for this, because there are several lines in Absalom Absalom that encapsulate this and won't get us sued by the Faulkner estate. (laughs) One of which is uh, Quentin saying, maybe nothing ever happens once and is finished. Mm. In that um, context, I wanted to give a, a brief shout out of my own, if I may, because I first encountered um, Absalom in uh, yes, postgraduate. So I one I of may. our questions: When, Sarah, um, did you first encounter Absalom? I this first, novel? as with so many of the books that I bring in, I read Absalom first as a graduate student, and then as a graduate student teacher when I was at the feet, as it were, but almost literally, uh, because they were up on a stage of some very, very great teachers at Princeton. I taught Absalom a couple of times there. One for Michael Wood, uh, who uh, many. Uh, of your listeners will know from his wonderful essays for the London Review of Books yep. and he gave one of the most memorable lectures i ever heard on absalom in which he posited that we all know what the western is and that what we need to think about when we think about faulkner is that there is a genre called the southern mm. yeah? and that where in Brilliant. um in the western it is once upon a time in the west but in the southern it is oh god not this again <laughs> 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 that so that's the southern. <laughs>
1: that's one of the things we should say that is, let's call it what it is: confusing for the first-time reader. Oh, that was oh, a
2: second or third-time reader.
1: Generations of characters who have similar or the same name yeah. come round again and again. The implication is this: the the events within the frame of the story or stories take place over three generations. Mm -hmm. But the implication is that they have been repeating in patterns for significantly... Longer. Longer, and will carry on doing so, right?
2: I mean, Faulkner actually ended up giving a genealogy at the end of Absalom, and when we were teaching it, and I have always used this, we actually turned it into a family tree, which I have in front of me, which is easier to read than the genealogy. And it is one of those books where you need to think about how the people are connected to each other, because part of what Faulkner wants to do is to muddy those waters, (laughs) is to, I mean, in every sense, right? It is, so we should say, I mean, it is fundamentally a book about miscegenation. And it is about not just racism as the original sin at the heart of American history, which Faulkner sees very, very clearly. And it is 1936. And it's really, really important, I think, to state that we can people will have all kinds of different views about what, you know, a white man from Mississippi of Faulkner's generation, what he would have his to grandfather say about owned slaves, his yeah. grandfather owned slaves yeah. and what he would have to say about. About racism, but I think a couple of important things here where we need to at least give him his due, um, and in my view why this is uh, such an uh, an important book, is that he sees that it's not just racism that is at the heart of the uh, failing of the American experiment, it is that, and these are all kind of tied up together. It's the denial of difference. It's, and that's why I said intersectionality at the beginning. It's not just the fact that the, that white male patriarchy wants to assert its power over the landscape. So we have a um, the central character that Quentin and Shreve are trying to understand is a man called Thomas Sutton, who came out of very poor West Virginia in the 1830s. And somehow, he's a kind of early Gatsby figure. Actually, no, I shouldn't say he's an early Gatsby figure. This is 10 years after Gatsby. But he's a weird kind of mm. Gatsby figure in that he emerges out of nowhere with this giant mansion and all mm-hmm, of this money mm-hmm. and all of these slaves. And he, and he creates and it is that kind of vision of the American dream of the self-made man. But for Sutpen, because he's in the South and because it's antebellum America, the slaves are absolutely crucial to his vision of that power. And he wants to have a genealogy. He wants to have a dynasty that he wants to create for himself. He calls it the design. And mm. that is what will look like power to sup him. And that becomes a kind of image of the American dream. And what Faulkner sees in 1936 is that the American dream is built not just on slavery, but on the denial of slavery, on the active repression of the fact that you are depending on slavery to get you where you are on the active denial of the fact that you actually need the women that you're going to deny power to, and that all of this comes back to bite Sutpen. (laughs) Um, And so what he has is he has this design that tries to exclude all of these people, all of these others that are black and women and mixed race and all of the things that he doesn't want to admit in this vision of white American patriarchal hegemony, and they all come back and they destroy his project from within, and that's an extraordinary thing for a white man whose grandfather owned slaves in Mississippi to see clearly in 1936, and and for me, where Faulkner really nails the way that race works in America, and again, why I would say it's intersectionality, is that this is also very much and simultaneously a book about class, and about how important class is in driving. Uh, Sutpin's design and in driving his ambitions and in and in undermining his mm. ambitions. It's class also um, that brings him down. And this book was written a year after uh, the great W.E.B. Du Bois, the um, great black historian, wrote Black Reconstruction in America, which came out in 1935. And in that book, Du Bois famously talks about what he calls the psychological wage of whiteness. And what he means by that is that no matter how poor white people are in America, they get this extra bonus point mm for feeling superior to black people. And that that amounts to a psychological wage and it is effectively why there won't be, he says, effectively why there why there hasn't been kind of labor unrest and there hasn't been a socialist revolution, effectively, because white people are given that extra bonus point. Now that feels pretty pertinent today in sure. a lot of what's going on. So what, what drives Sutpen is his sense, so he has this kind of Freudian primal scene where he, um, as a young man, as a yeah. teenager, he encounters he's sent to the house of a rich man and he falls into and that's faulkner's metaphor he falls into a knowledge of race and class that there are other people that people look at the world differently and that he always thought that being white was going to give him that edge and then he suddenly realizes that get, being white isn't sufficient mm, yeah. and he has to do better and that's what kind of drives and his turned, tragedy
0: crucially turned, turned away turned away by a black servant at the door in, a, a, in a better
2: suit than, he is, better wearing, suit than is he is wearing which is why it is class mm. and yep. race
1: okay so Sarah you were saying about the southern what was the southern the southern was the The southern is, is oh
2: god not this again oh god not this again <laughs> so
1: we have a clip here from a 1952 CBS documentary of Faulkner talking <laughs> I mean it's very stagey it's but it's great <laughs> so, so stick with it okay it has a brilliant payoff yeah with a chap called Phil Stone, who had been, was an early supporter of Faulkner's.
3: He remembered the friends who believed in him when few did. Phil Stone, a lawyer who was William Faulkner's earliest critic and supporter. Hello, Bill. How was we? Cool, but pleasant. You and the King have a good time? He's a fine gentleman, Stone. He even got along with me. You, if anybody, knows how easy that is. That's true. Well, I'm proud you finally made it back in New Haven in 1950, and you had this voice, Then you wrote a lot more of it. We had it typed up, off. So everybody turned it down. And you wrote Saudris, which we knew would sell, and it didn't sell. And then Sound and Fury, which was a fine book, and didn't sell. And As I Lay Dying, which was another <laughs> fine book, and didn't sell. Then we got the notion of you going off to England, see if you couldn't get recognition there, like Frost and Pound and Elliot did. That didn't work so well. Came back and wrote Sanctuary, and that put things over. I knew all the time you were quite a great writer. I knew I was betting on a sure thing, but the trouble was nobody else knew it. So you're the reason I have to wear a necktie in the middle of the week.
0: <laughs> um, that little film is, is sort of... It is very staged, but there is something, um, there's something very sweet about it. And also, what comes across is his faultless sense of humor which you know you might be mis- you might be forgiven for not for, <laughs> noticing not, in this for book. not noticing <laughs> in some of the work i
1: have to say i'm going to raise a slight uh, no i'm not going to say this isn't one of the greatest novels of the uh, 20th century sarah thank you but i would like to make the point that this is one of the most challenging novels i think we've done on backlisted mm. just in terms of the prose the prose requires you i think to take quite a leap absolutely it's so stylized mm. at points yeah and uses rhythm and repetition both of which as we've already established i like both of those. <laughs> <laughs> right. but uses rhythm and repetition in a way that frequently the narrative is being parked mm. for a while and i i found this challenging mm. and i you know
2: yeah i'm good at reading you are good i I got a
1: i got a prize but 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 no i found it i found it hard and some of it and and the richness yeah the the you know the southern sweetness to the point of an almost kind of decadent yeah richness in the approach right it's
2: supposed to be like that right and that's the thing so i absolutely agree but now you've you've queued up something for me if i
1: if I may, Go.
2: Um, now I'm not going to uh, attempt to do a Faulknerian Mississippian accent. Oh, I'm that's from, shame. I'm from Chicago, and that would offend everyone, uh, <laughs> left, right, and center. Well, well done. But what I will do is try to slow down and just intimate a draw. But what I want to suggest is that what what Faulkner does—he <coughs> excuse me—he's one of those modernist writers who's, who's meta enough that he gives you his technique as he goes, and he tells you. He kind of gives you the um, the the. <coughs> the decoder ring that you need to know how to unlock his prose or at the very least, how to like, you know, to use a a slightly unsavory metaphor to how to relax and enjoy it. Right. Um, And the, the, I know that's an unsavory thing for me to say, but the, (laughs) but the the thing is, is that um, the, I think about Faulkner the way I think about Henry James um, and some of the other great challenging writers and just about my own experience of reading them and certainly, like everybody, I find it's not like I just suddenly picked this up and thought, "Oh, I've got it. This is completely yeah, yeah. clear to me." I mean, it's opaque and it's difficult and it's and it's frustrating. And you want to say, "Just Bill, just tell me what's going on," you know? But of course, it's deliberately destabilizing, deliberately disorienting. That's part of the process and part of what he wants us to think about. But I also think that with writers like Faulkner or James, um, they're the ones that leap to mind for me, who who are so much their own stylists and so much their own sentences and their own way of writing that for me, the the metaphor I always think of is that it's like swimming and that when you learn how to swim and you know how they teach you, they tell you not to fight the water and let the water take you where it wants to go. And for me, the currents of writers like Faulkner and James are so strong. And and so I just give myself up to the current. And so there are pages where you kind of lose track and you're just kind of letting the Mm. words wash over you. Mm. And I think that's fine as long as we go back to Faulkner's key piece of advice, which is read it a third or fourth time. This is the the advice, I think, that percolates through this passage. So I wanted to read at least one of the very famous passages from this book, partly to give a flavor of exactly how challenging it is Mm -hmm. in the ways that Mm -hmm. Andy is saying, what I'm about to read will probably make no sense whatsoever, no matter how hard I try to imbue (laughs) it with sense. Um, I think there is sense in it. (laughs) So this is Miss Rosa talking to Quentin. It's actually Quentin's uh, memory, his reconstruction of what Miss Rosa said to him six months earlier. Um, and But this is Miss Rosa talking to Quentin. Once there was, do you mark how the wisteria, sun-impacted on this wall here, distills and penetrates this room as though light unimpeded by secret and attritive progress from mode to mode of obscurity's myriad components? That is the substance of remembering. Sense. Sight smell, the muscles with which we see and hear and feel, not mind, not thought. There is no such thing as memory. The brain recalls just what the muscles grope for, no more, no less, and its resultant sum is usually incorrect and false and worthy only of the name of dream. So that that the, that initial sentence that is so hard to, to hear and to understand for secret and attritive progress from moat to moat of obscurity's myriad components. But if you think about that, of sunlight dappling through dust moats with the wisteria, yeah. Yeah. Hang, and it's coming through the wisteria-covered windows. So it's shadow and light and dappled and moat. And the idea is that the moats are bit by bit, progress by progress. They are building into something that you can, that not that you can, understand but that you can sense mm.
0: and there's a really important thing about Faulkner which some people I mean the, the, you know the, the technique in Absalom I think is is is, is done to a because it's over a much greater historical uh, scope so it's in a way it's a big symphony mm-hmm. whereas As I Lay Dying which is probably his most famous book the one that tends to get taught because it's short <laughs> but it is the same technique really which is voices overlapping and unreliable narration
2: and the shortest chapter in well certainly in Faulkner in all of American literature yeah. famously my mother is a fish, fish.
0: yeah which, which is <laughs> just worth but the, always the, quoting the, what is difficult for people is that there's a there's a kind of poor hick family who express themselves with the articulacy <laughs> of a deep profound philosophical kind of clarity and poetry so that's in al- As I Lay Dying yeah, yeah. A, <laughs> and also I think in this book that there is the philosophical kind of overlay but when he wants to be a very very good and observant novelist. <laughs> Uh, and give you the sense of something that's actually happening, that somebody remembers, that really sticks in the memory. He does that brilliantly as well. So this is Miss Rosa when she's much younger. She's living in the house, in, 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 in Sutphin's house, and she's carrying uh, the, the, the coffin of Charles uh, Bon, who has been murdered, uh, has been shot, uh, down the stairs. So uh, an important part of the narrative. I remember how as we carried down the stairs and out to the waiting wagon, I tried to take the full weight of the coffin to prove to myself that he was really in it. And I could not tell. I was one of his pallbearers, yet I could not, would not believe something which I knew could not but be so. Because I never saw him, you see. There are some things which happen to us which the intelligence and the senses refuse just as the stomach sometimes refuses what the palate has accepted but which digestion cannot compass. Occurrences which stop us dead, as though by some impalpable intervention, like a sheet of glass through which we watch all subsequent events transpire as though in a soundless vacuum and fade, vanish, are gone, leaving us immobile, impotent, helpless, fixed, until we can die. Until we can die. I mean, Mm -hmm. so this
1: is that sense of, of, of being stuck, is so, all the way through the book. Sarah, I would like to pick up something you said earlier about contemporary resonance. Two things I'd like to ask you about. The first one is in relation to Gatsby. You drew a line from Sup and to Gatsby. I would like to th- throw in The Confidence Man by Absolutely. Herman Melville as well, right? Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. The American...
2: Confidence trick.
1: Stroke, self-creating man. Yep. Yeah myth whatever yeah the the american dream yeah may or may not be the term that one would use where do you see the contemporary resonance in that in absalom absalom specifically in relation to that at the moment Mm -hmm. you feel that that, that's a a clear and present thing yeah
2: absolutely so as i said at the at the top i mean to me so this is a book about thomas sutton's desire as as quentin says um, he wants to get richer and richer that's what uh, Sutton wants to do. So call that the American dream, I think, you sure, know sure. perfectly reasonably. And in order to do that, he needs to have a big house and he needs to have slaves and he needs to create this dynasty. And that central, this patriarchal vision is central to how he envisions his own power and his own success. So he's not just a self-made man on his own terms. He has to have this family and, and this dynasty yeah. around him. Yeah. And he yeah. has to have these slaves. The slaves are absolutely central to his sense of what his own white power would look like and what it would feel like. And what happens is, without giving too much away, the best way to, to explain it without giving too much away is that there's a kind of Jane Eyre, and I've mentioned the Gothic a couple of times, and there is a kind of riff on Jane Eyre here, right? So, um, so so,
1: something's in the attic. There's, or someone's there's, in the there attic. There is right? a, yeah, um,
2: and with a similar kind of background. So what happens is that every time that Satpon tries to assert the purity of his white lineage, race keeps coming back because you can't actually get rid of it. It will not go away right so he keeps trying to to say that he can he can create this life in america that it, that is dependent on race but will in no way be undermined by race and he can't he simply can't mm-hmm. and that's what the story is about and so what's amazing is there's this character in the middle of the story so suppen calls it his design and it's this web that he's trying to weave and this network that he's trying to create and he doesn't know he keeps trying to figure out what the mistake is that he made and he doesn't understand that the mistake that he made, in one sense, you could say it's that he doesn't understand the role that other people play in this society. Um, but in a basic sense, it's that he underestimates the black woman at the heart of the story. And she's, un- she's the Penelope unweaving his web. And she has an equal and opposite design to his. And she's determined to bring him down. And she does. So it's basically about the fact that yeah. you know, that everybody else is time is coming. And that's why I think it's incredibly relevant now.
1: Also, can I add to that? um, We mentioned Gail Jones earlier and we mentioned Toni Morrison earlier. When we talked, when we did an episode about Beloved earlier in the year, one of the things that I don't think I'd appreciated about Toni Morrison, but actually I, I thoroughly appreciated having read her relatively recently prior to reading Absalom Absalom, is the extent to which Morrison's project is a literary one. Indeed. Filling in the gaps totally. created by the American canon. Exactly. Up to that point, right? Yep. And yet, as you said earlier, that almost reflects, in the terms I've put it there, that reflects unfairly on Faulkner mm. because Faulkner is this peculiar mixture, it seemed to me, of things that we would find offensive now mm. and tremendous uh, humanism mm. in terms of seeing fully developed characters yeah. from yeah. every point of view. But, there, there, I mean, there is a case for the prosecution. Absolutely. Baldwin, there? There James Baldwin, Baldwin
2: makes it quite well. James yeah.
1: Baldwin really kind of
0: says he, he concedes the madness and moral wrongness of the South, but at the same time he raises it to the level of a mystique which makes it somehow unjust to discuss Southern society in the same terms in which one would discuss any other society. So...
2: I mean I think the thing about Faulkner is that he is this legacy that you can't not wrestle with yeah. if you're an American writer. And 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 what's so interesting is to see what all the great black american writers do with him. And what Baldwin does with him is different from what Morrison does with him is different from what Gail Jones does with him but they're all wrestling with him or wrestling with him as he would have said. And they're <laughs> and they're and they're all they're all building on him right? So they're taking those foundations and then saying okay he took it so far but from their point of view perhaps not far enough. Yeah. But also, so, you know, as you say, giving credit where it's due okay. I mean, you know, we should say we are sitting around here as as three middle class white people. So our view of yes. this is going to be different from other people's view of it. What I find extraordinary about Faulkner is that regardless of, of where you come down on the Baldwin side of things about whether he does enough with it, it's that he sees it so brutally and so clearly and so plainly, and he builds his story around it. I mean, What happens over the course of the story, and again, without giving too much away, but I don't think you get the sense of the profundity of it without at least touching on this, is that various possibilities are scrolled through as to why Charles Bond was murdered. And one possibility is incest, and one possibility is bigamy, Mm -hmm. and one possibility is miscegenation. And as Faulkner rolls, like shuffles the cards of what are the various things, you realize kind of how clearly he can see what it is that is, is, you know, to use your um, imagery of rotting from a moment ago, what is rotting American society Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. within. And and that as as I keep saying, I think I personally, as a you know, white girl from Chicago, um, you know, born a hundred years after he was, um, I find that a remarkable thing for a white Mississippian of his generation okay. to see, but I fully concede that yeah, other people yeah. are gonna have a, you know different perspectives on that.
1: Okay, listen, before we wrap up, um, we can't go without a little quiz. Yeah <laughs> and uh so I've got a clip here, and, I, and I'm going to direct this at Mitch, right? Okay, so good. This is Mitch. No, I didn't know I was having a quiz. No, exactly. So it <laughs> doesn't seem entirely fair. But I'm going to... Di- so, Mitch, this is for you. Which novel... <laughs> so it's, it's the mid-1950s. Yeah. William Faulkner is being interviewed by some students yeah. at the University of Mississippi. Which novel have they asked him about here?
3: I was impressed with one book of his there was a a, a young man intelligent a little more sensitive than most who simply wanted to love mankind and when he tried to break into mankind to love mankind man wasn't there that to me was the tragedy of that book that to me is is the threat which all the young writers nowadays have got to be on guard against the pressure to relinquish, submerge individuality of me into a mass of art, and I think that that in a first-rate writing has been in terms of the individual who, even in the moral and team of the world, was still me, myself. He got his his elbow skinned and his head but now and then, but just with other heads and other elbows, not with uh, machines. There was nothing in uh, the team and moral of, of the world to destroy his his soul by compressing him into a relinquish- relinquishment of the I Am.
0: Uh, Salinger?
1: Yeah. yeah. That is the best Description yeah. I have ever yeah. heard yeah, of f- why we still read the catch yeah. in the Rye. Right. I think I, I, I agree you know? with that, I and agree. and also making the link that Faulkner does there of saying, well, I like the story of Holden Caulfield, but I also recognise that Holden Caulfield's story is that young writer's story, mm. yeah. the idea of what do you do to keep your individuality when you go cap in hand to the world and the world mm. says, we're not interested.
2: Right? Mm. So, uh, but you can also hear echoes there of that connecting to his other masterpiece that we haven't, we've only just uh, name checked, which is A Light in August. Yeah. And A Light in August is really in a sense about, I mean, you can imagine that being him describing A Light in August as well, a man going in search of his humanity and they're not listening.
1: Cool.
0: It's good. And so I'm afraid we must leave it there and extract <laughs> ourselves from the endless coils of narrative and say farewell for now. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>! <laughs> to Yuckna Topafa.
2: Yuckna Patafa.
0: Yuckna Patafa Yeah! America. Our thanks as ever to Sarah for providing us with the shining ball of twine to guide us through the maze.
2: And to our producer... Yay! Nicky
1: Birch for dispensing the gentle balm of coherence on our fevered ruminations. <laughs> you can download over a 100 of our previous moats. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. Follow links, <laughs> clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. Thank you for listening. Uh, See y'all later. (laughs) The podcast is never dead. (laughs) It's not even a podcast.
0: (laughs) If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listeds, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.